This week we're talking about photographing seascapes and the Oregon coast, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As I say every time, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'm just getting back from my Oregon Coast workshop, hence the late episode. But because I am just getting back from my workshop, photographing seascapes is very much on my mind. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. Before we jump in this week, I do want to let you know that the Out of Moab conference is going live this Friday. The registrations are going to open up Friday. This is going to be a really, really cool event put on by the same people as the Out of Chicago conference. We're going to have instructors like Jay and Verena Patel. We're going to have Sarah Marino, Thomas Heaton, Aaron Bobnick, Joshua Cripps. We're going to have a whole bunch of really big names. And yes, I'll be there too. Really, really excited for this particular conference. It's going to be in Moab, which is very close to Canyonlands National Park, as well as Arches National Park. It is going to be a great time. They've limited the registration to 150 people. It's going to include excursions and classroom time, post-processing lessons, portfolio reviews. There's going to be a whole bunch there. It's going to be a really cool event. This is going to be happening in October of 2018. And if you want to get signed up, I'm going to have an offer code. I believe it's just going to be Nick or Nick Page uh, that's going to get you 250 bucks off registration. I know that it's a third of the way full before it's even launched, so you're going to want to jump on this one pretty early. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as soon as it comes available, or you can join our Facebook group, and I'll post the information there with links and the promo code. So keep your eyes open for that. You're not going to want to miss it. Okay, with that, let's sit back and relax, grab your favorite drink, and let's talk about photographing seascapes. Of all the different genres of landscape photography, I think seascape photography is my favorite because you're photographing a moving subject and a subject that is constantly changing. You can sit there, set up and shoot the same composition over and over and over for an hour and be completely content. Because photographing moving water, what's cool about it is that every single frame is different and you're never going to get the exact same thing twice, generally speaking. And it just makes it endlessly entertaining. There's a lot of things that go into a successful seascape photo. And let's talk about those in this episode. So I begin a lot of my workshops now with a talk about the importance of shutter speed. And the reason for that is that shutter speed is probably the most overlooked setting in landscape photography because you're photographing on a tripod. A lot of people get used to photographing very static scenes. So you set up your tripod, you go to ISO 100, you pick your aperture, and then your shutter speed is going to be whatever gives you the exposure that you're looking for. But with seascapes, your shutter speed becomes the most important setting because that shutter speed is going to greatly dictate how your photo looks, the amount of energy that it has, and just the overall feeling of your photo. Some seascapes look really great with kind of that slower shutter speed, a half second to a full second, where you're introducing motion and you're kind of giving this calming effect to the water. Other seascapes look great with a really fast shutter speed and really freezing the action and maintaining all the texture, detail, and energy of a particular wave or splash. Some of my favorite photos were actually taken handheld at a really fast shutter speed. Had I shot those same waves with a slow shutter speed, 
they would have a completely different feeling and completely different amount of energy in the photo. So I encourage you to really think about your shutter speed choice. Generally speaking, a fast shutter speed is going to have more energy. It's going to freeze the action, especially if you have something really interesting happening. That fast shutter speed is going to freeze the action and make it feel just a little bit more energetic and frantic. Slower shutter speeds are going to have a calming effect until we start talking about, you know, really long shutter speeds like two and a half minutes where you get you turn that water to either fog or just glass. That's going to have a very, very calming effect to where it doesn't feel like a water shot anymore. It feels like a static shot of, uh, I don't know, an ice rink or something. It's a completely different feeling. So step one when choosing your shutter speed is what feeling do I want to convey? The second thing is experiment with your shutter speed. Don't just, you know, dial in a particular shutter speed because Nick Page said to and then go with that. You want to experiment while you're there. You're already set up on your composition. You might as well shoot several different shutter speeds then and then decide later what looks best. Generally speaking, though, I'm always looking for a shutter speed that's going to insinuate that motion, allow things to blur out a little bit, but not so much that I'm losing the detail and texture in the water. I'm always looking to retain the detail and texture in the water because that's what gives that foreground interest because oftentimes that water is your foreground. So you don't want to lose that. But at the same time, all water is moving at different speeds and what exactly that shutter speed is is going to change from shot to shot. Typically, I like to start around a fifth of a second and then experiment from there. Sometimes I'll need slower because the water is moving slow and lazily. Sometimes I'll need faster because the water is very energetic and a fifth of a second just isn't fast enough. Like all landscape photography, one of the most important things uh, of getting a good seascape is, you know, the scouting process. You don't want to just go out, find a rock, set up, and be content with that. You want to walk around you want to keep your eyes open and look for interesting patterns that are being formed over and over with the receding waves or maybe the, maybe the way a wave is coming over a particular rock or ledge. Walk around, scout, and really try to find some kind of really strong uh, shape that's being formed or a compositional element that you can create from that water movement. Don't just grab random water and put that in your foreground. You want to be really thoughtful about what you're putting in your foreground as far as the shape of your water. Probably my favorite part of photographing seascapes is the fact that you can take a group of people down to a beach and everybody's going to come away with something so completely different. And the reason for that is because every wave is different and shutter speed completely changes the way it looks. But also, because the water becomes your foreground, you're almost photographing like abstract art in a way, like the, the water becomes your abstract art. For that reason, you want to, once you find a composition, you want to shoot many frames of that composition because every single wave is going to be different. A lot of times there's going to be that one or two waves that just have that something special. Something special happened during it. Maybe, you know, one of the receding waves came right out of the corner of your frame, something like that. You want to shoot enough to where you're giving yourself the opportunity for something interesting to happen. I'm always looking for things on the beach for the water to interact with. Maybe it's a rock. Maybe it's a pebble on the beach. Maybe I'm not photographing the water at all. I'm photographing the reflection of the sunset off of that wet sand. If you do get lucky enough to get that big, beautiful sunset, wet sand is your friend. And the reason for that is because it's effectively going to double the amount of color you have. 
rather than the typical landscape where you have rocks, grass, mountain, and then big, beautiful sky with a seascape, you can have big, beautiful sky reflecting off of wet sand and then a little bit of water movement mixed in with it. Basically, you have a frame that is entirely color and you can just double the amount of color that you have in your frame by getting that reflection off of the wet sand. A few of the most important behind the scenes things that go into a successful seascape photo are things like paying attention to tides, knowing what's going to be photogenic at what particular tide level, paying attention to surf height. If you're shooting on the beach, a lot of times those big surf moments can be very dangerous for you and you could die. You could get swept out to sea. So pay close attention to surf height and tide height. And let that dictate where you're going to go. Don't just say, I'm going to this beach on this day. You need to do a little bit of scouting and preparation to know, okay, what beaches are the most photogenic at high tide or low tide or mid tide? Also, you need to know what coastlines are even safe to shoot at those really big surf days as opposed to the really small surf days. Some places could get really boring. The Oregon coast is an excellent example of There's plenty of places that look amazing at low tide. You know, Yaquina Head Lighthouse, where you have this amazing sea pools with sea stars and sea anemones, sea anemones, and uh, urchins and all these really cool stuff with the in the rocks down below. And then you got a lighthouse up above, makes for a beautiful photo at low tide. At high tide, waves are crashing over all of that and you don't see any of it. In fact, it'd be really dangerous to be down on that beach during a high surf. But then you have places like, I don't know, Cape Kiwanda or Cape Disappointment where you end up getting these really big surf events and it's really, really entertaining to watch the way that the waves crash against those, those cliffs and those same spots during low tide. Eh, they're kind of lame. So you kind of need to have plans for both high surf, low surf, high tide, low tide. Generally speaking, if you're down on the beach, low tide is going to be a whole lot less exciting, but a whole lot more photogenic, generally speaking. So some of my favorite gear for photographing seascapes are, of course, the wide angle lens. A lot of my seascapes are wide angle, especially when I'm down close to my foreground on a beach and really accentuating the way the water's interacting with rocks, or maybe I'm getting close to a sea star, something really cool like that. Wide-angle lenses are great for that. Plus, you if you do get that big, beautiful sky, you get to really make it large and in charge in your photo by getting down low and, and having lots of sky in your frame. But that's not to say that there is not a time for telephoto as well. I would say most of my best wave shots are taken at least 150 millimeters. The reason for that is you need to fill the frame with what's interesting. And when you get those big waves, filling the frame with the energy of that wave can make for a really compelling photo. And it's amazingly entertaining to just to stand on a cliff somewhere and photograph waves, especially if you can get them backlit. Backlit waves are some of the most beautiful things on planet Earth. There's nothing better than a backlit wave. But having that telephoto so you can fill the frame with with either sea stacks that are way out in the ocean or compressing the scene as you look up a coastline or photographing big waves out in the ocean, you need that telephoto lens. So I'm always taking with me a wide angle lens, telephoto lens, filters. The most common filters that I use are a circular polarizer and a three stop ND filter. 
Now, polarizers can be a challenge anytime that you have a lot of sky in your frame. The reason for that is if you're shooting wide angle and you have a lot of sky, it's not going to darken that sky evenly. So there's a lot of times when I'm photographing seascapes, if I'm shooting at 16 millimeters, I abandon the circular polarizer. But if I'm shooting telephoto, I'm pretty much always using a polarizer because you don't run into that particular problem. I find that a three-stop ND filter oftentimes gets me to that goal shutter speed, that shutter speed that I'm looking for, which is usually somewhere between a tenth of a second and one second. Somewhere in there is generally where I'm going. And if the sun is still up and the ambient light is still high, you're going to need an ND filter to get to those target shutter speeds. So a three-stop circular polarizer, those are most typically the, the filters that I use the most, but I have recently started using the new Breakthrough Photography graduated filters that they've come out with. Uh, Breakthrough Photography has sponsored me and they were kind enough to send me the whole set. And I've always kind of said, well, you know, I exposure blend, so I don't need these. But this last time on the Oregon coast, it was really fun to be able to get the entire dynamic range all in one frame using graduated filters. And seascapes are the absolute perfect time for this because you have that flat horizon out there. It's not often in nature when you get a perfectly flat horizon, but when you're looking at the ocean, that's one of those times graduated filters work great for seascapes. The one caveat of that being as long as you don't have some kind of sea stack out there. If you do have some kind of sea stack, then you're still going to be getting into exposure blending to try to brighten that rock back up because you've over darkened it and now you've got this big black blob on your horizon. Not the most realistic looking thing. It makes it very obvious that you're using a graduated filter. So there's a time and a place for graduated filters. Seascapes tend to be one of them. Anytime I'm photographing on a beach, I always, always, always use my big, long Desmond spikes. These are a set of spikes that you can get for the bomb of your tripod. They're about three and a half inches long. And what's nice is that if you've ever been on a beach and you've set up your tripod, the waves generally will come in and then as they recede out and move past your tripod, it tends to undermine the sand that are underneath the feet and your tripod kind of quivers and shakes and vibrates. Not the best thing in the world for a nice, stable, sharp shot. So, so the workaround for that are either the big round feet that you can get that are specifically made for sand and snow, but I personally prefer the three and a half inch spike because you get that first wave that comes in, and then as it recedes out, you jam those spikes down into the ground, you push your tripod down, and then it's never going to get undermined again. The next waves that come in, you've got a nice stable shot because your tripod legs are physically down under the sand already. And it's going to be nice and stable. You don't have to worry about your tripod vibrating or falling over with a wave or something. So tripod spikes are a must. And I've always used the Desmond brand spikes because they're cheap. You can get a set of three for like 25 bucks as opposed to the really right stuff ones that are like a hundred bucks for the set. And spikes are spikes. Another accessory that I absolutely love, I adore, it's probably my favorite accessory of all of my accessories, are the NRS Boundary Sock with Hydro Cuff. Essentially, they're just a wetsuit that goes up to your, as high as your knee, and you put them on underneath your pants or your rain pants, and then you put a pair of sandals or shoes over the top of them. And with rain pants over the top, you can literally stand in water that is waist deep and stay dry. And that is really nice when you're photographing around really cold coastlines. Oregon coast was very chilly. Iceland, 
even more cold. And as long as you're wearing those with a, a nice set of rain pants over the top, you can get in really deep and be okay for quite a while. When I was in Iceland, I stood in the Iceberg Lagoon, literally standing in ice water, and I was in there for 45 minutes and was totally fine. These things are great for really cold river streams and stuff that might be snow melt. Having the ability to stand in water and not feel hurried and rushed is really, really nice. And you don't want to play the whole game where you set up your tripod, a wave comes in, and then you run away. Because what happens when you do that is you run away, and then you don't get back to your camera in time to take a good photo. Or you run away from your tripod, and then the wave knocks over your tripod because you're not there to like stabilize it. It's better to have these things on. Not deal with muck boots that are really heavy. That's a nice thing about these NRS socks is that they're really light. It's lighter than carrying an extra jacket or something. Much lighter than muck boots. And the problem with muck boots is that if the water goes over the top, you're getting wet feet. And these NRS socks, they seal and they're lighter. They're just miles better. They're totally worth the money. I love them for seascapes. So I've mentioned how important the tide height and the surf height is for photographing seascapes. We should probably jump into some of the apps that I use to determine how high is the tide, when's the tide coming in, all that stuff. Okay, so get your pen and paper handy if you can. My first favorite is Magic Seaweed. It is an app. It's available for both Android and iOS. I think the same is going to be true for all of these. Magic Seaweed is what it's called. Shows you surf height along with tide table times. Very important stuff. Uh, I also use Surfline. Surfline is another one. It's more geared towards surfers. And for that reason, it seems to be a little bit more overly optimistic about the wave height. (laughs) On days when the waves are looking like 8 feet, sometimes it'll say they're 15. It's not the most accurate in the world, but they have different data points, the two different apps. And sometimes you can't get a data point that's really close to where you want to shoot, so I use the other app. Or I'll look at both apps and I'll kind of average out the difference. Because Magic Seaweed tends to be conservative, Surfline tends to be overly optimistic. Another app that I like to use is called Windy. Windy is cool because you can move your little location selector around. And when you hover over an area, you can swipe up and get webcams for that nearby area, which is really cool for determining whether there's a chance for sunset. But you also have temperature, rain, radar, as well as surf height. And I find that app to be really useful. And then, of course, the usual suspects like Weatherbug, Weather Underground, and the NOAA apps are really good for determining the weather. A couple other accessories that are important, only because you're photographing around water and you're going to get wet at some point. Your gear is going to get wet. So a couple other things that I like to have with me is a large microfiber towel. I'll use that to dry off the camera if it happens to get splashed or if it starts to rain, just, you know, very lightly rain. I'll kind of drape that over the top of my camera to keep the water out of the buttons and stuff. Another thing I like to use are these Kimtech delicate task wipes. I think they're called or or Kimtech scientific wipes. I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't remember the exact name of them, but basically they're designed to be ultra absorbent. And so if you get a little bit of water on your front element, you use these to just wipe up that water and it just sucks up that water almost instantly. And it's much more absorbent than a lens cloth. That's just going to push that water around. Kim tech scientific wipes are really cool and they're really affordable. Then of course, extra lens cloths. 
as soon as those lens cloths get wet they're not nearly as useful another thing is seascapes are one of the times that i like to use a remote shutter release and the reason for that is because timing is so important and because timing is so important you can't really do a two second timer because you're doing longer shutter speeds, you can't really get away with shaking your camera very much either. So a remote shutter release will allow you to take a photo instantly and get the timing that you're looking for without shaking your camera. Okay, guys, I think that pretty much does it. Hopefully there was something in this episode that you found useful or interesting. If you have not already taken the time to rate this show on iTunes, I would be very much appreciative. It helps get the show out to more listeners. And speaking of getting the show out to more listeners, if you have a friend that is interested in landscape photography, please tell them about the show. The more people that we have listening to the show, the better. And the cooler guests I can convince to come on the show. Speaking of cool guests, I've been talking to some pretty cool people lately. Uh, Some fairly big names. I'm excited. I don't want to jinx it just yet. Uh, But next week, we will be having Joshua Cripps on the show. Really cool guy. You should check out his YouTube. So thank you guys so much. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye.